welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure, and today we're going into gaming and esports, not just anything. We're going into big esports here with my guest calling in from Melbourne and down under, Chris Smith. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Hey, mate. Good to be here. Yeah, I love the mate part. Uh, that is so Australian. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, let me quickly introduce Chris a bit more to uh, everyone who isn't as familiar with the world of esports and uh, has come across this podcast, which is called Big Esports. Um, and uh, Chris had, uh, has been in this industry for about a decade um, on various roles. And we, we're going to dig a bit into this now uh, in the first part of the, of the conversation. And then we're really going to have a great discussion about the difference of esports and traditional sports and the revenue streams there. And Chris has some incredible data points there, uh, which we'll dig into and uh, in, in, in very detail of the difference between you know revenue streams online and uh, and what gamers and streamers and and of course other platforms in this ecosystem uh, generate. So that's what this podcast really is about. To but it, it should be very highly educational. Chris is a true expert. Um, you should check out his podcast too uh, if you really want to go very deep. This one is going to be a little lighter, um, but very educational. I'm very sure. So, uh, but let's jump right in there, Chris. Um, you know, if I recall from our previous conversation, obviously gaming and, and esports is in your blood. Uh, this is sort of that's your passion, um, and you turned your passion into into a business or in, into a career. So let's get started. We always start a bit at the beginning. You know how it all started for you, and 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 share that a bit with us. Yeah, for sure, man. No worries at all. So, you know, I've been around in, I guess, gaming and esports market for a, probably about 10 to 12 years now. But for me, um, I guess thinking right back to the start as a player, really, it's it's always been PC games for me. I uh, mm. got introduced to computers from my father at, at an early age who took a real liking to it. So, you know, I could say that maybe if, if I was destined to be a pro gamer, I'd probably have a pretty good story where I used to play Warcraft 2 on a 14.4K connection, dial-up connection as a four-year-old right. against one of our friends from interstate. And, and across a body of water as well. So would have been a good story for turning into a StarCraft 2 pro maybe, but it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't quite to be. But, you know, for me, my, my pathway into the industry is the same as so many who've been around as long as me or much longer, which is we started as a player. So I've played uh, in top top level teams in Australia in three different first person shooter titles as a whole, mm -hmm. two from the Battlefield franchise, so Battlefield 2 and then Bad Company 2, um, and then also in Counter-Strike Global Offensive, which is now a solid T1 eSport. But for me, you know, playing in top four, top eight teams in Australia, just depending on the time and, you know, what the game was and what year. And you were doing that while you were going to school or, or what, what sort of give us a time frame here? Oh, yeah, after, exactly. So after college or... Yeah, so I fell into esports kind of by accident, which is also, you know, how so many people, you know, my age have been around as long as I have did. So, you know, I was playing Battlefield 2 throughout school through, you know, year 9 and year 10. Uh, for us in Australia, that's that's around 16 years old in, in year right. 10. And then, you know, wanted to kind of test myself and think about how I could become better. Mm. There was a thing in Battlefield 2, whenever you logged in, you could set a clan tag. And I had no idea what that was. Um, and I remember seeing a guy was in a game with a clan tag on and we used to play in the same server every single day, which was uh, Internode, Games on Net, Strike at Karkand was the map, 32 players on a 64-player size map. Right. Vehicles turned off and um, I just asked him. His name was Cardiology because he was studying to be a doctor and so his gaming name was Cardiology. Okay. And, um, yeah, I just asked him, mate, what's a 
what's a clan tag mean? How are you so good? <laughs> and you kind of filled me in. And, and then the rest is history from there and decided to become a better player. So I started taking things quite seriously in around year 11 um, and then kind of started my professional career, I guess you could say, as, as a volunteer commentator in around year end of year 11, start of year 12. So they had about a – it was 17 or 18 was the minimum age requirement for that organization called Net Game Radio. Mm-hmm. And I started doing some Battlefield 2, some Counter-Strike source commentary and just started taking more jobs in that space. And it's this is exactly why you know we get a lot of messages on Inst- on on LinkedIn and, and Twitter sometimes on Instagram people saying Chris how do I get a job in this space and usually right. I say just pick one thing and stick with it so you know I started as a commentator only commentating one game and I said hey guys I started playing Counter Strike I noticed you guys don't commentate in there and they said well Chris if you want to do it you can go do it I said right. okay and then I said hey guys I want to do video game reviews this is when flash games were huge mm-hmm. on websites like Newgrounds and etc and they said well Chris if you want to do flash game reviews go and do it. So I did. <laughs> and yeah. then I said, hey, I think it would be good. There's a lot of LAN parties that are happening. And a LAN party is when people bring physical computers together to, to mm-hmm. play against each other in casual or competitive competition. Right. And NetGame Radio had some sponsors. I was like, hey, guys, we could probably increase our audience if we promoted LAN parties on our website and they promoted us and maybe we gave them some of our sponsor prizes. And they said, well, Chris, same story. If you want to do it. Uh, go and do it. And then when their marketing manager left, they did that as well. And and that's what enabled me to start working with some more higher profile brands and what allowed me to land my first job. But, you know, it was really just taking those opportunities as you come. And, you know, you find this, um, I guess you could say I started off as an intrapreneur, which is a a, a word that I've heard of before, which is like an entrepreneur within a large organization. Right. And, you know, you'll find that for most people listening to this podcast who aren't, you know, I, I know there's a lot of senior people, but I'm sure there's some juniors as well that listen here is that usually if you go to a business and you can make a case that, hey, this is worth it, the, you know, this is worth our time doing, I promise it's not going to bring any negativity and promise it's not going to lose us a bunch of money. Pretty much any boss is going to say, okay, go for it. <laughs> and then That's you can true. just go build your own path from there. Yeah, absolutely. No, great start. I, I love that. Uh, now let's d- just have a look a bit around um, the different roles you've played or, or, or companies you work for. Um, you know, one comes to mind here is uh, I'm not sure if I pronounce it properly. Uh, thermal Take. Um, yes. And uh, you know where you were sort of in it was events management. You did again some esports community side of it. Uh, what exactly was that all about? Yes, that was my first full-time professional job in the space. So when I was at NetGame Radio, we were working with a LAN party. um, And the manager of that LAN party came to me and said, Hey, Chris, I'm the graphics designer and distributor for a company called Thermaltake. They're launching a new peripheral brand into the industry, so keyboard, mouse, mouse pad, headset in Mm. in the gaming section. Currently, what they had at that time was only like computer cases and components to go inside the the box on the floor, as some people call it, the hard drive. but he said, look, they, they came to me because I run some LAN parties. Um, they want to run a $30,000 prize pool Call of Duty tournament, which turned into Counter-Strike after that. Hmm. I got no idea. Please help me. <laughs> okay. And I said, because he was the only person who played video games at the distributor. So they just assumed, well, you run some events, you play video games, it's your job. And th- this still happens to this day in esports. I'm sure you know. I'm sure you've experienced this in sports and esports as well. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure many listeners have too. So it was a trial by fire for me, but I ended up, doing a really good job, um, almost getting fired from my IT traineeship for working, you know, kind of bleeds over when you're on MSN Messenger trying to sort out, uh, you know, 32-team online tournament that goes to a land finals. And, you know, $30,000 in 2010, that was my first professional year working as an IT trainee. I, yeah. I deferred uni to do a bit of a gap year, was going to do a Bachelor of Behavioral Science, um, my own marketing, which never, obviously never eventuated. Um, but, yeah, it was it was a great trial by fire and Thermaltake said, look, 
you know, we, we'd like to bring someone on full time. We don't really have anyone that does marketing here. We, we need someone to support this new brand. So yeah. they offered me a job and I moved into state to work for them for, for four years in a community manager aspect. And it was fantastic. You know, they gave me the room to, you know, develop my own marketing strategies as a 19 year old who had no idea what I was doing and they didn't really know either. But, <laughs> you know, my salary wasn't that high because I was very junior. Um, and the industry, you know, was, yeah. was where it was. So I really got some room to, you know, develop and learn all of those skills and we're able to do things like be a semi-professional player at the same time while working. Yeah. Um, you know, I went to Taiwan, um, I think it was four, somewhere between four and six times with that company, you know, yeah. so I got an international experience um, with trade shows and, and sales conferences, et cetera. I got to, um, you know, do shows like PAX Australia and EB Games Expo. And it really taught me um, a lot of the skills of, okay, there's something you don't know how to do, just go and find out how to do it. Yeah. And that's some of the ways that I've mentored some people. And these days who come to me and say, Chris, I want you to help me as a mentor uh, figure out how to run an esports tournament. And usually what I say to them, and I don't know if this is putting it too simplistic, is, is say, well, just write down everything you think you need. Hmm. What is an esports tournament? What, what's the process of an esports tournament first? Okay, well, you need people to sign up for your tournament. So, well, there you go. Build a website, build a marketing strategy. How do people sign up? How do they pay? All right, that's step one, done. You know, what do they do next? <laughs> you know, and then you can just kind of build, you can, you can kind of go through those and, and fact check your way through as you so go. You, and, yeah, you did that for about, what, three, four years. And uh, then I sort of what I see here is that pretty much right after you, you started your own uh, agency, right, Chris Creative Collective, CCC here. Um, yep. you know, how did that sort of, you know, how did you were ready to jump off, uh, jump out and, and, and go on your own, right? Because you were, you know, then starting your, some of, you know, some of your own public speaking and, and events and, and other consulting side of it. Uh, talk yep. us through that a bit. Yeah. So I finished up at, at Thermaltake at the end of 2014. Um, and I'd actually applied for university as well. So I got accepted into a bachelor, a bachelor of social work with honors at RMIT in Melbourne, another bit of a passion of mine and my mother's a master's of social work. So been, been quite exposed to that section. Um, and I landed a job as a journalist throughout that time as well. I was working at, at first for a UK company called Etechnics and then a US one called Tweaktown, just doing, you know, basic news. So this motherboard released, here's the price, here's the features. Right. And then started doing some basic reviews of, um, of of like smartphone accessories like battery packs, which are obviously very important back in 2014, not so much these days. Um started doing audio and some things like that too. But, you know, then started picking up some of my own jobs on the side. So I ran a bunch of different um, online and, and physical campaigns with Gigabyte and, and NVIDIA and ASUS and AMD and Intel. I think I'm one of the few people who can say that I ran a I ran a, a, I ran a marketing campaign through one Facebook page for both AMD and Intel at the same time. And right. still I don't even know how I pulled that off. But um, <laughs> nice one. I managed to. So call me some sort of some sort of uh, prophet or wizard maybe. Because <laughs> yeah. anyone who's worked in this industry knows they, they don't exactly like each other too much. Yep. So, um, I mean, for reasons, obviously they're direct competitors. But, um, right. you know, I did some things like that too that, that really enabled me to, once again, I guess, grow in the space and, and you know, learn, learn a little bit more on both sides of the fence. So, you know, if, usually when I am to explain to people where I am today, I've kind of sat on all six sides of the fence. You know, if you were to run an esports tournament, which is a staple, you know, kind of marketing exercise in this space, I've been there as the manager, as the pro player, as the consultant, the VIP, I've been there as the tournament operator, I've been there um, as the commentator. So I've been there in basically, you know, every single angle you can think of. Yeah, and I love that. A lot of that was my personal and professional development. Every time I thought I found the thing that I wanted to do forever. 
I thought I wanted to be the best player in the world. Decided, no, that's not for me. You know, I was never a fantastic player, no. but I was always the one who would meld my team together, would keep people's energies up, mm. you know, would organize the, the scrims that we would play, scrims like practice matches, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I thought I wanted to be the biggest and best commentator in the world. And I realized, no, too much travel, too much stress, and, and also too low of a ceiling. Mm. Then I thought I wanted to be director of marketing for a company like Thermaltake and later Corsair. But no, that, that wasn't the answer for me. I didn't want to be stuck to just one brand no. doing those kind of releases within one industry you know and I thought I wanted to be the biggest and most well-known journalist in the world and it turned out no you know that's not for me but Mm. it enabled me to gain that experience all of those different areas that I can talk at least you know within the past decade from personal experience with every single position within the market except for you know lawyer I guess CFO but I kind of am as a startup owner now Um, and you know some of those other positions too. And we'll come back. We'll obviously, you know, dig a bit deeper into in where you are now with big sport, uh, big esports. But uh, before we get there, uh, just a couple more things here. One of the other things which I like uh, in your CV here is, uh, you know, you're a board member and, and somewhat of a sort of a bit of a founder, I guess, as well of the uh, EGAA, the Esports Games Association Australia Limited. Not a long word. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so uh, let's talk a bit about that. A is, of course, uh, what what the association does, and then B, you know, let, let's. Frame a little bit for for our international listeners here the the esports and gaming world in Australia right I mean uh, I know it's grown dramatically I've seen some uh, some numbers there in, on your uh, from you as well but uh, talk us a bit through it what you've seen there um, over the last decade. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so so the EGA kind of came together because you know there's there's always that discussion. You know, anyone who's talked about esports with government or anyone probably from sports who's thought about it, which is what who's the governing body? Yeah. You know, so who's the who's the controlling body of basketball? Pretty obvious. You know, football or soccer? Pretty obvious. Yep. Cricket? You know, pretty obvious. Depending on what country you're in. Um, but within esports, it it adds that extra. Um, it adds that extra um, issue, which is it's it's much more private. So, you know, esports is is created as often as a marketing ploy and and quite often even as a loss leader, which is confirmed in, in my podcast with um, the head of electronics arts, competitive gaming, mm-hmm. you know, that esports is often a loss leader for a public or private for-profit company. So, you know, you don't need to pay the rights to anyone to just don a swimming cap, go to your local swimming pool, you know, maybe pay $3 to get in you know, back in the day or maybe $10 these days and swim or just go to the ocean and swim. And you don't really need to pay anyone for the rights to lace up your shoes and then go for a run on, you know, at the local park. But if you're playing any game like League of Legends, even though it's free, you're still playing within their ecosystem. You know, you're subsequent to their rules. They're able to market you to purchase in-game items and it adds that extra commerciality aspect. So that's why it becomes hard unless there's some kind of global governmental regulation, sometimes there is local, say like in Japan, to have a, um, you know, an overarching federation that will control esports. So what's the next best thing? The next best thing, um, you know, from what I believe is to create some sort of association which says, yes, we represent the best interests of the market um, and the market agrees by joining us as members and then we can go and talk on their behalf to people. But we can't tell anyone what to do because there's no way that, you know, little old you in, in Australia um, is going to be able to create, you know, a federation and then tell Blizzard in the US, you know, owned by Tencent in China, like here's, here's how it's going to go down, fellas. They're going to say, no, there's not a chance. Like I'm not going to listen to you. So you need to have that. So that's that's the way that EGAA was created is, is to kind of be an uplift of the community. So some things that, you know, happened it was was like a launch conference where we found that one of the issues was that a lot of these esports conferences, while, you know, 
any any traditional business within sports or, or you know traditional business realms can afford a two to two hundred to two thousand dollar ticket for a conference. Esports companies simply can't. So that was one of the first things to do was like, okay, can we make a few hundred person esports conference where the ticket is under a hundred dollars that someone who's actually part of the market can afford to go along and can afford to learn about the latest things that are happening within the space and hear from, you know, mid to high level speakers um, without having to fork out, you know, because the cheapest conference in Australia besides that was Ashton Media's conference, which was extremely successful back in um, 28, late 2018, 2019 time. And, you know, that was still $440. And if you think you're like an 18 year old who's just founded your own esports org, you know, you're probably not making any cash. You're probably putting your own cash into it and losing money. Mm. There's no way that you can afford a $440 ticket plus the flights and accommodation, let alone the others that are much more expensive. So, that was some of the initiatives. The, the going at EGAA has been much slower than, it, than I would have liked, but unfortunately that's also what happens when you put together a lot of high-profile people who are all busy and then give them more work to do together <laughs> without funding um, to yeah. do so. So, yeah. Well, interesting. And, and again, yeah, these type of associations are popping up everywhere here in Asia as well. Um, and and it, like you rightly said, it's the, the, the balancing act of, uh, you know, how much power do they really have and what can they do? Um, I know here in Asia, they're trying to align themselves with the Olympic Council of Asia. So because it, yep. as in Asia, as you probably know, um, esports has now become, uh, uh, let's say, an official game in uh, in the Asian Games as well as in the yep. Southeast Asian Games here. So there is a little more of an official status to it. And therefore, this typical association structure, which you have in normal sports or in traditional sports, Sports uh, kind of falls in there a little better, um, but it's clearly not maybe the re- uh, what happens in the rest of the world. And so it's it's a it's an interesting battle. I mean, even there are a couple of global associations. Right? I think there's two, I believe, around the world. Right, one out of Korea, and then I'm sure where the other mm-hmm. one is from. Um, but again, mm-hmm. you know, that doesn't mean the, the rest of the world all accepts them, right, <laughs> and follows what they're yes. saying either. Right? So it's it's an interesting struggle, which also will lead us later when we when we comparing, you know, traditional sports and esports uh, in in other ways. Uh, it, it's one of the big differences for sure. Um, it's an interesting mm. space there. Now let's talk a bit about what you're doing now, big esports, right? Um, first of all, I love the name. Um, and, uh, and of course you have a podcast, uh, let's, let's touch on that a bit. And then, uh, you know, a little bit more about, you know, what are some of the, the, the roles and the work you guys are doing there? Um, so when mm-hmm. did you start your podcast and, uh, you know, and I said, you know, the word big esports really means you go really big and very deep into esports, right? You've had some, you know, incredible speakers in there or guests on there and, you know, share a bit about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, the big esports podcast, you know, as, as with, um, you know, so many others, we kind of started started being quite clinical um, when we started that podcast many years ago. And it was, um, you know, quite scripted. The questions were sent in advance and that kind of stuff. But over the period of time, it's it's devolved, but I think in a good way for how I like to create content. Mm-hmm. It is something a bit more casual um, where we don't have any scripts. There's no pre-prepared questions except for a short talk before the guest comes on. And the, and the topics have started becoming wider and wider. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's been a great um, business driver for us. And that's, that's where most of our content sits as. Right. You know, we're quite prolific on LinkedIn, create a lot of content on there that serves as a business driver with people seeing that content, resonating with it, understanding that we're a leader in that market, then reaching out to us to work yep. with that. And we get about probably about 75 to 80% of our business, I would say, directly through LinkedIn. Oh. And the podcast is is part of that driver. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also enabled us to talk with some fantastic people. You know, I had the CEO of Atari on. Um, mm-hmm. I had the chief revenue officer of FaZe Clan, you know, the world's biggest esports yep. team, you know, as they, as they claim. And that would be biggest by social reach by far. That's right. Um, 
you know, the, the value of 240 plus yeah, mil. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they had their chief revenue officer who's come on twice now. Um, you know, I've had their ex-business development head, Clinton Sparks, come on, who's now leading another team. You know, it's enabled me to interview the CEO of Atari, you know, professional players. I'm a big Dota 2 fan. You know, yeah. it's enabled me to have two ex-world champions, <laughs> you know, who've won the Dota 2 International. Come on, Peter, PPD Dagger from, you know, when he won it with EG um, and also Loda when he won it with Alliance. Come on and talk as well. But we decided to relaunch it a little bit to be a little bit more casual um, and a little bit more wider focused. You know, esports e is less than 1% of the entire games market globally, right? You know, being a one to $1.1 billion US industry and games being, you know, anywhere between 150 to 160, depending on who asks and when the report's done. Um, so, you know, most of our work, even though we're called big esports, is really in the gaming space because right. we find that esports is such a buzzword that most people come, you know, most brands will come to me saying, Chris, I want to do esports. And you say, well, no, you don't. You actually want to do gaming or right. you really want to do Gen Z millennials. Yes. And then the interface for them is gaming. And That's yes, right. esports can be involved in that. But usually esports isn't the biggest or all of what you want to do. And obviously it makes sense in some parts because if you make high quality football boots, of course you want to work with Manchester United or someone like that to get your product in there. But if you've just created a social app or, or not even just, or maybe to create a social app and you've got a billion dollars in marketing, it might not make sense for you at all to work with the Manchester United. It make, might make sense for you to spend 700 million of that into Google ads and $300 million with influencers and some of those being gaming because gaming reaches the audience that you would like. Yep. Um, so, you know, working with, working with companies like that, um, coming into the space, you know, we, we follow that across with the podcast. So with the relaunch, you know, our first podcast that we did was with Fusion Droid, a friend of mine who's a Minecraft YouTuber um, who lives here in Australia. You know, at 22 years old, he bought a, he bought a house, four-bedroom house in cash of ad revenue money, and right. he doesn't even know how to write an invoice. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so we had a fantastic chat with him. You know, I'm a good friend of his, and I'm always trying to push him to be a little bit more business-minded, and that's not his history, so that's fine. Yeah. But, well, he's 22, you know, so uh, we'll just give him some time, I guess, and he'll get there. Yeah, exactly, exactly, man. But, you know, he's working, you know, as, as, as he said on the podcast, he, he works about three to four hours a day, seven days a week. He produces about eight videos a week that make him between one to five thousand dollars ad revenue per video. So if you do the maths off that, you take the average. This is in AUD because because he, he works in AUD. Yeah. You know he's going to be earning about a million USD this year just of ad revenue alone. Without you wouldn't say without trying, but it's almost like without a plan. He's just doing what he does. There's no business plan here. Yeah, yeah. And, and so that is. I mean, we'll come to that later a bit more. Yeah, these sort of I know you have tons of these great examples there. Um, so yeah. when it, when we come to um, you know the leading out of the out of what comes out of your podcast and the leads you could generate it. So, would you consider? Would you sort of describe it as mostly uh, consulting to brands or anyone who obviously tries to get into the gaming esports business um, to take it? You know, to as you said, target the Gen Zs, the millennials. Um, you know, and and figure out how to get a slice of that hundred fifty billion dollar. Uh, is that sort of the space you're in? Uh, is that the best description, or how would you describe it? Sure. I think, you know, we're, we're kind of almost developing more. I've got to figure out a better way to explain this because I've already explained this twice today and here again on the podcast, but we're almost developing into like a, a VC, you know, growth company that provides sweat equity and business development instead of capital. Okay. So there's a, there's a series of companies that we own that we're working with others on. There's one in the okay. merchandising space, one in the raffle space. Mm -hmm. There's a series of other people's companies that we're working on. Um, there's, there's one that's in, um, the content creation space, there's celebrity influencers, there's a few others as well, tournaments, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then there's also other 
projects that we do on the side, which is um, some consultancy influencer marketing, both in Australia and globally. Um, you know, our own LinkedIn content, we're directly monetizing that now as well through four different advertisers right now. Sorry, three and trying to lock in a fourth um, and some other parts of that too. So it is really a mixed bag. But, you know, it's the the way that I met um, our partners, Playside Studios, was very similar to like what you were saying. So, you know, Playside is Australia's largest independent games and app development company. Mm. They're um, listing on the ASX at the moment. I believe the article said that they were aiming for a $50 million AUD listing. Um, and, you know, once that listing's up, we'll, I guess we'll see what the final numbers are. But, you know, they approached me on LinkedIn and said, hey, Chris, we've been following your content. We would like to find a way to become to, to become involved in esports and gaming. Um, you know, competitive gaming, was there in casual gaming? Can you come in for a chat? And they ended up paying me to do a four hour training session with them talking about the market. And then they decided that they wanted to, um, you know, work with me hands on instead of doing something themselves. Hmm. Interesting. Um, no, that's cool. And, and um, this is also a nice segue into what, what I want to talk about. But I do remember uh, to see that we kind of didn't touch on the, the Australian landscape um, in, and how it's grown here. Uh, let, let's go back there for a minute. Um, just talk us through how, you know, how would you compare Australia to the rest of the world? Right? I mean, you guys are always uh, doing things a little different out there. <laughs> but uh-huh. how does Australian esports or gaming connect to the rest of the world? In what sense um, do you have teams there who play global? or you have your own sort of, you know, most people just play within their own ecosystem there or just, just mm-hmm. give us a quick sense of uh, the Australian landscape in esports. It's the, the easiest way to explain is we're pretty much 10% of the US. Okay. Um, so 10% being kind of like revenue numbers, you know, I think we're roughly like 7% of population size, but over um, purchase a little bit more, we've got a higher, um, we've got we've got higher disposable incomes and higher minimum wage and things like that too mm. um, in regards to our consumption. But, you know, if you look at a company like Corsair, which I worked with, becoming their first marketing employee or first employee in Australia full stop on the ground, you know, Corsair already had so much market share in every category without a single bit of marketing being right. Australia driven just from global US marketing. We'd like to play the same games, League of Legends, Overwatch, CSGO, Call of Duty, right. FIFA. We like the same esports. CSGO it is the strongest and most long running, you know, non-developer supported esport in Australia by mm. far and probably the number one esport really in Australia. Right. And, you know, we've had some competitive international success with that. You know, we've had our, our CSGO Vox Eminor boys, they were, turn into Renegades, turn into 100 Thieves and perform well. You know, Renegades right now have a team, another team they picked up, which is based in Australia, you know, and have had some good performances overseas for that too. Um, the issues come from location, you know, essentially where, where the US in Asia. So mm. some of the problem is that we don't play a lot of the same games as they do in Asia. So we can't practice against them. And because right. we're so physically removed, you know, ping is a problem, which right. means that we can't actually play. You can't actually play competitively in Australia versus the US. And there's no way to fix that unless they make the speed of light go faster right. um, because that's how packets travel okay. and how we need to play against them. So, you know, often League of Legends teams here will go boot camp in Korea. You know, thankfully, you know, League of Legends is shared across those. But if you're looking at, at say, Counter-Strike, which is one of our main games, you know, it doesn't that doesn't have a strong showing in Asia. Um, so you're required to go, you know, to other countries, which then creates that barrier, that physical barrier for us that's, you know, it's expensive. There's also internet infrastructure problems here as well. Um, but, you know, there's, there's quite there's quite a strong sporting culture in Australia and, you know, one look at the, and it blows my mind every time I talk about it, but one look at the Australian football league, you know, I mean, we're a 20, 24.5 million um, population here and we've got our own code that doesn't exist in any other country essentially that can sell out a hundred thousand tickets for a finals. 
which yeah. is absolutely nuts. So there's obviously, you know, capacity to grow. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a very competitive spirit, I think, in the in the average Aussie, um, and that is in traditional sports already. That that kind of starts triggering into the younger generation into esports. I think I have no I have no doubt. Yeah. So uh, you know, you will have some world champions coming out of Australia um, in, in no time. And I said, you know, that you guys are. You know, mirroring a bit to the U.S. market um, in sense is also not a bad thing because that's where obviously a lot of the money is. Um, it is interesting that you said that uh, it doesn't really mirror the Asia Pacific region, which is very mobile driven now, right? As you know, uh, it's really mo- the mobile games is what's you know taking taking on this place like by storm here, and you know PUBG and you know Mobile Legend, Bang Bang, and you name it, right? Uh, Free mm. Fire are just killing it out here with massive numbers. Um, mm. And of course, now, you know, that's what I would argue would drives, you know, at least here in Southeast Asia and to some degree in China, those those big numbers there. Um, so uh, that's an interesting, good, good overview. So let's dig a bit into the part which, uh, you know, I'm really looking forward to. And that is comparing the real world of sports to, you know. The, the esports and, and sometimes you know, let's call it gaming world uh, in a more general mm-hmm. sense. Uh, and we touched on it already earlier with uh, the first part, which is really who owns the IP, right? Um, but, you know, in, in the real world, it's federations, leagues, you know, who have created these these codes, like what you guys called codes, um, uh, around the world, whether it's FIFA here or it's the Premier League, who obviously manages and controls a large chunk of it. And in the in the in the in the gaming world, of course, it's publishers and developers who own it uh, that's that's the obvious and i think that's uh you know we just touched on it earlier with you know this there are federations but they're really not in charge um is there mm. anything else we're missing here um why, just talking about the ip ownership side of it you got any other thoughts on that before we get into some of the other parts yeah the other main missing part and and this is partly due to federations not existing um you know and, and i guess and I don't, I don't have full knowledge on, I don't have full knowledge on this either. But I remember watching an interesting YouTube documentary a while ago about how soccer or football in the in the US has been held back by federations fighting, even as of a hundred years ago, mm. um, and that trickle down effects from that. Um, you, you know, the, and it was a question as to, you know, if the US is so big and has so much money and so much sporting prowess, why don't they perform extremely well in in soccer? And that was their answer. But the the main and, and drawing the likeness between that and something within esports, the main thing is pathways. There's mm-hmm. no clear pathway for anyone. So like I said, I accidentally got into esports and then I had to manually search where to go to. Right. There's a lot of um, high school leagues happening now around the world. There's a lot of collegiate leagues that are coming up. There's right. hundreds of colleges in the US that have right. collegiate leagues and dozens that actually have scholarships and full programs now as well with coaches. Mm. There's even um, you know, there's even three universities or four now in Australia that are taking things very seriously. You know, Two in Queensland that have their own facilities are RMIT in Melbourne, which also has its own facilities, and Murdoch, which is about to build some huge facilities with government funding over there in Perth. Um, but there's still fragmentation that happens there. So, you know, when I played, even even as a, a boy growing up in a small town um, in Tasmania with, you know, 23,000 people in Devonport, Tasmania, um, I knew that, you know, I was a massive fan of cricket. I knew that I could play cricket with my school, then I could play for the local Colts, then I could try yep. for the state, then I could try for the national team. Right. And then play internationally. Yeah, there's a, but there's with an yeah, yeah, but with an esports, there's no clear path. And sometimes that's the best thing possible because mm-hmm. sometimes, like the Australian Open, you know, one of the biggest and best tennis tournaments in the world, they've run a Fortnite tournament for the past two years. And a 15 year old who plays on on uh, console and he plays on controller on PC called Brezzo, it's his gaming name. Mm-hmm. He came down from Queensland. No one's ever heard of him, and he won the tournament. He won like over 100 grand cash. Wow. No one ever heard of this kid before. But it was purely because of the merit 
merit of his skill. It wasn't through some selection process. It wasn't through anything else other than playing online qualifiers that enabled him to show his skills to come to the finals. And he beat players from Flashpoint Walls, which have flown in from China. Mm. He beat players from NRG who were flown in, Benji Fishy, who performed high in the World Cup. He flew in from the UK. He beat FaZe Clan members from the US. You know, this 15-year-old who you've never That's heard awesome. before. So sometimes it creates those fantastic stories. You know, imagine being a 15 year old on stage. You know, yeah. he looks shell shocked, and you can see what, you know, you can think, <laughs> of course, why? Like, he's won 100 grand and he's 15 and he's never played it, probably never played at a live esports tournament before either. And, and now he's in front of a crowd at the Australian Open <laughs> and well, on Twitch and, TV and, to hundreds know, of thousands of viewers. So, yeah. and, and there have yeah. been younger ones who won more than that. What was the, the kid who, who was who won Fortnite? What was it, $3 million? Yeah, like, he was, like Booger, yeah, yeah, won $3 million. Yeah. You know, there's, How old was you know, he? there's he was examples like, what, of 15 or 16 as well, right, or something. Yeah, I believe something like 15. You know, there's other examples of Samael, a Dota 2 player who, you know, won a won a million dollar major with EG at like six, I think he was like 16 or 17. He'd won over a million dollars personally in prize pool at the time he was 18 across multiple tournaments. Mm. You know, he won the Dota 2 International, came second another time, um, you know, been a top player since he was kind of 16 years old. Just, just nuts. So sometimes there is positives, but ultimately, yeah, it's a lot of negatives because there's no clear cut pathway for people getting into the space. And there's also the confusion of what is esports as a performance versus what is esports as business. So we've started doing some work with the school here to help them develop an esports right. entrepreneur, entrepreneurial base, of yes. course, because basically all of these universities by a very select suit few, say Staffordshire in the UK, they run an esports course mm. at their university. It's, it's all still performance-based. And that's only one small part. You know, the, the example that I use for people in Australia is like Sharon, who makes the footballs. They're a very different company to like the Richmond Football Club, you know, and, and the high performance is very different to, this, to the science of Adidas making the actual boots oh, for them to, uh, to kick with no, or I, marketing I, the boots. I totally agree. Uh, and we're doing some work in that as well. There's been a, quite a few conversations we had with within countries um, where they say, look, how do we build a college esports league? Um, you know, in the US, obviously, it started already. I'm trying to think of the company who, who, who uh, yeah, is quite. There's a ton. Uh, yeah. North American Collegiate League is probably the correct, first one that comes you know, and, and, and obviously, the exactly. And it's, you know, driven again by how traditional sports is, is very structured there as well in, in, in the colleges, in the university. So they pick that up as, as a no brainer. Um, but mm. I do think the rest of the world is picking that up as well now and slowly seeing that, you know, you can you can do this as well. There's, again, starting slowly a bit more of a career path um, for that, of course, you know, tying it in with, with studying and university side of things as well. So yeah, I, I'm sure that we both see a lot of those very interesting things there. Now, the other part I'd love mm. to, while we're still on the, the IP ownership here, is the leaks part. Okay, so... Mm-hmm. And that is where I, I, not all of them, of course, but some of the leaks, again, copy certain elements of um, of the American league structure, which is closed leaks, right? It's not an open system like uh, you have, I think Australia is more similar to the Europeans where there's relegation, right? You drop out if you, if you don't perform. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously there are these big league competitions where you buy yourself into um, with your team, right? So you buy a franchise the same way you buy a franchise in the NBA or the NFL, um, and therefore then you're allowed to play in these in these major tournaments. Um, now again, there, again, there is such a broad variation between all of them, from you know very little money to play a, maybe a league here in Thailand. You know, um, Garena has Free Fire League here. Um, so I know their Arena uh, Velo League, I think, is is a close league here. So you get a little team here. Um, you play; it doesn't have cost a lot of money to be in this, but of course you 
you want to play at the big leagues, um, you know, we're talking what ten million dollars or, or even larger sums. I've seen to to buy yourself into. Uh, share that a bit, you know that you know your knowledge in that space. Yeah, for sure. Do you mean like yeah, in Australia specifically or, or globally? Uh, globally, yeah, in a big picture, yeah. globally. Yeah, so I guess the you know the, the easiest examples would be like the Overwatch World League, you know, like a thirty million dollar. Um, franchise spot right. and similar with the Call of Duty League as well. But there's always questions around that. So, you know, some of the first discussions I had with, with my partners um, when they employed me as a consultant first before joining forces with me was around um, from from one of them. I'm just trying to think about exactly the best way to explain it. From one of them, he was saying, okay, Chris, so you've told me that games come and go. So, you know, soccer or football, hundreds of years old. Right. You know, cricket, hundreds of years old. NFL, similar. But if you think about um, the oldest games in the market, CSGO, it's like, what is it, 10? League of Legends, 10? Um, or, you know, Counter-Strike as a whole I think is 20 years old. Not quite. Um, you know, League of Legends is 10 years old. Overwatch is, is what, four or five? Um, Pokemon Go, you know, four or five years old. Obviously, Pokemon yeah. Go is not an eSport, but even four, games four, as a whole, right? a couple of years, so. Yeah. So if you think about the issue then, okay, if, if games come and go and I've got to pay $30 million to get into this gaming tournament, how long is it going to take me to make that money back, to make it worth my while? Also considering that eSports is a $1.1 billion market globally. Yeah. You know, so is, is spending 30, 30 million plus operating costs in there going to make sense? So those are some of the questions that people continue to ask. And, you know, we've seen with the Overwatch World League, the numbers have gone down season over season, but they have said they're releasing Overwatch 2. So mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see if they go back up with that. But, um, yeah, it's an interesting one. And, you know, they've tried to combat some of um, the way esports has historically worked by making things, you know, state-based or city-based as well. So you might have... Um, you know, a Chicago-based team, an LA-based team, a London-based team, et cetera. You know, there's London Spitfire. Um, right. And, you know, it's the old dynasty in Overwatch, et cetera. So they've also tried to do that to, you know, make make people go with that pride of their locality. But, yeah, it's it's been an interesting one. I, I'm still not, um, you know, I'm, I'm still not totally sold on the idea of having these franchise leagues and these closed leagues. But mm. we've seen other people adopt those semi-closed capacities. So, you know, the Riot Games Oceanic Pro League, which has since shut down in Australia, um, for quite a while they did have that that relegation style league mm-hmm. where it's, you know, the top eight teams and maybe the bottom one or two drop out and the other ones come up. But then that became a semi-franchised where it was, okay, the teams that are in the top eight, you're now locked into here. And obviously it creates um, stability for brands. It creates the ability for, um, you know, to build that marketing power as well because what happens if you sell a brand, you're going well, you have some poor performances and suddenly you're out of the tournament. Like that really sucks and, and it doesn't build that that stability in business or for marketing. But it also does come with those concerns that there is kind of, there is becoming that kind of professional gatekeeping, I guess, as part of that and then relying on, you know, that aspect of being able to scout new players and bring them up and then also the costs that are associated. I see it almost like, if you're going to list publicly, you know, what is it, about a million dollars a year it costs you extra just to be listed? Right. So I, I see that almost as uh, the same here with these franchise leagues. You know, there are inherent benefits to being listed by being public and, you know, more people know who you are and your information's out there and public people can invest in you. But there are also other downsides, which it costs a million dollars a year extra in operations just to exist. Right. So you could say exactly the same thing about a franchise tournament. It provides you stability. It provides you that ends with the brand. It provides you with something that can be built over that long term. But also, it costs you, you know, that thirty million dollar franchise spot to get in there. So, do they outweigh each other? And that's a business decision people need to make for themselves. 
Definitely. And, and that leads nicely into a little bit, I want to talk about teams, the difference in teams, esports teams and, yep. and pro sports teams. And, and let, let's quote uh, sort of uh, Mark Cuban here, who I think uh, sort of is one of the you know, more well-known ones, keeps saying, you know, esports team is a bad investment. Um, now, as I said, you know, there are obviously others who might have different opinions on it. Um, you know, and Team Liquid and Face Clan, I think very few people will argue that these are not great, well-run organizations um, and, and obviously have abilities to generate some tremendous revenue, but also creating large valuations, right, in the hundreds of millions of dollars already uh, versus a you know, smaller team somewhere else in the world. So, uh, you know, pro sports teams, I think mean, we all know, you know, they are the, they are the Man Uniteds and the, the Dallas Cowboys and the LA Lakers of the world, which are billions of dollars worth grown over how many years, you know, decades, uh, in some cases, um, saw statistics the other day that the average NBA team went from $300 million valuation to $2.1 billion over the last decade in 10 years. That's a nice growth if you own one of those, um, you know, and, and of course, one day can, you know, either you sell it or, or goes, you know, have that asset in your in your books there. Now, let's compare that to, as I said, the esports teams, you know, where do you see this going um and then we touch on of course a little bit already the difference in league structures there mm -hmm. yeah for sure so you know i guess one of the main differences between a sports and an esports team is is the rights so you know doing some studies on this for a saudi saudi client of ours that we're doing a feasibility study for mm -hmm. you know looking at the nfl and and that earnings and earnings percentage versus say an esports team you know the, the reports say that an esports team will gain around 70 percent plus of their earnings directly from sponsorship right. and a lot of smaller regions and non-us regions that number is even higher um where you know often in australia it's 99 percent plus wow. um one of the other main differences to clear up and I've, I've had this misconception from a few different um, investors is that an esports team doesn't keep the majority or sometimes even any of the prize pool that flows through them as well. Really? So it's quite common for an so esports team to straight keep... to the players or, or... correct. All yep. right. Okay. So it's, it's quite common for a team to keep anywhere from zero, but more likely 10 to 25% of the prize pool right. going through to the players as well. Whereas I'm led to believe that if you have a horse, for example, um, you kind of employ the jockey and it's the opposite. You might mm -hmm. pay the jockey a bonus for winning, but ultimately it's your horse. It's your asset. Right. And you're hiring to ride that that horse, whereas an esports team, it's flipped the opposite way. So not only are you responsible for paying the salaries for these players, which are growing astronomically, you know, the average starting wage for a LCS or the average starting contract for an LCS player, so League of Legends Championship player, mm. Championship Series player in the US in League of Legends is 300,000 USD. That's good. Um, Cloud9 have released. Yeah, exactly. Cloud9 have released their CSGO contracts. Um, you know, I, th I believe they have about $6 million worth of contracts within that team now, which is buyouts plus salaries, right. um, not including any bonuses or increases year on year, mm -hmm. um, of which there are to be some more as well. And, you know, I, th I believe it was Cloud9 that came out a couple of years ago and said, yes, we lose a million dollars a year in our CSGO team, right. and now they pay them more. So the, the main difference in earnings, though, is that you're not reliant on those um, home ground or facilities. So, you know, looking at um, some of these NFL teams, you know, publicly traded, you can see that a lot of their um, a lot of their earnings will actually come through ticket sales for their own games, will come through sponsors at their home ground. That simply doesn't exist for 99.9% of esports. Right. Some people do, are now developing their home grounds, you know, as part of Call of Duty and Overwatch World League. The other major difference is rights. 
there's no, you know, CBS, there's no ESPN, you know, ESPN plus massive deal with UFC. There's none of that that's coming down at all. So, you know, the Overwatch World League did do a, a signing with Twitch in the past, which they relinquished. They went to YouTube, but that was part of a, a global deal with Blizzard. I think esports was potentially just an add-on to that. It was mainly about hosting servers with Google. Mm. Um, so there's none of those rights are really coming down. So that is an advantage, you know, if you're in a franchise league, if they, if and when they become profitable, they'll obviously pass down some money to you as a team, but there's none of those big rights that are being earned so the ways that these teams are innovating is they're operating essentially as an agency so we're helping to broker a deal right now between an esports team in australia and a headset partner and the headphone partner is looking for the professional influence of the team but they're also looking for influencer campaigns they're looking for b2b sales support in regards to events sales events they're also looking for someone who can run tournaments for them so essentially you're an agency that also yep. owns an esports team. You know, very similar to Talon Esports, who we helped to raise um, 150K, I believe it was, as part of their seed round through an introduction through us, hmm. um, and had them on the podcast a few times as well. You know, that's that's how they function as well. Talon, Talon creates media for their sponsors, not just for their own campaigns, but for their sponsors' campaigns too. So if a sponsor's launching a headset, or a keyboard or a mouse, Logitech, which is one of their sponsors. They won't just create the content on their own, but they actually create content for Logitech to share. Or example of Kanga Esports in Australia, a team I've done a bit of work with, they're creating graphical and video assets for Atari right now for a launch. They are um, running booths at, at live events. They're doing media for other companies. They, they, they did an influencer campaign with them recently that had nothing to do with their esports team. Yeah. I mean, if so, you see what FaceClan does, I think it's it's amazing. Right? I mean, they are a bit like what you just described. I mean, A, they have obviously this massive fan following around the world, all, you know, all the players they have on the team, um, but they are into everything. And, and a lot of the things they do, of course, turns quickly into gold because of that huge reach they have. And, you know, th- I think that's, again... A bit different than what you see when you look at traditional sports teams. Yes, they do have large followers, um, and and on the back of it, they monetize it normally by building it into their packages. Right. So when I talk to Man United, it's clear they they say, look, we got one of you know a billion followers globally uh, of fans. Um, we have you know in this region this many folks, and therefore here's how we can target it. Uh, but it's still mm. more in a, in, a, in a larger integrated sponsorship package where you kind of you know it's one line item somewhere in there. But I think esports teams are much more specific. Specific, uh, targeting teams there through streams, of course, and, and other ways. Right, uh, I think there's a different model to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the other, you know, the other major thing, if you're thinking about who's, you know, making most of the money in the market right now, it seems to be the owners of content and the game developers. Correct. You know, it's really hard to be a publisher or developer unless you've got billions of dollars, you know, compete with a Blizzard or EA or someone like that, yep. you know. Um, would believe that, that some of some of the smaller ones like Playside do well, which is probably why they're, you know, IPOing. They probably believe they do quite well. Um, but besides that, it's the owners of the content. And if you look at FaZe, like you said, you know, we, we were helping FaZe with, with a raise for a bit. So we have access to some of their numbers and mm-hmm. can talk in generals. But, you know, the, the amount of money that they make from content is nothing to be sniffed at at all. And, you know, if you look at the merchandise, they're able to sell as well. You know, yep. Jeff Pabs, the chief revenue officer who has been on my podcast twice, you know, he said they, they sold a million dollars worth of champion merch in an hour. Right. Um, they did a launch with Bear Brick, which are like quality collectible, almost like toys, like statues. Mm. They were 172 USD. They sold out in 26 seconds. Um, they did $3 million worth of collab merch with Juice World, a rapper that passed away. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a few others too. They've they've now launched their own phase studios to create content. And they've also partnered with uh, and, and released their first full feature length movie featuring only their talent. 
in that movie as well through their own streaming service and platform too. So it's really going towards that and and the influencers as well because you look at the amount of money that some of these influencers are earning and, and, you know, with, with Fusion Droid, for example, that I said going to make over a million bucks this year, he makes he makes more money himself than any esports team does in Australia in revenue. Exactly. And I can, exactly. you know, can guarantee that because I know how much they earn and, and how much he does. So yeah. you compare that, he's 23 years old, he doesn't know how to write an invoice. You, know, you can see the power of these guys versus entire companies. Exactly. And that's where we're heading. We're going to talk about the athlete and then, of course, the, the KOLs and influencers. But I have one last cool. one here, which I, I need your input on, and that is the – the difference in in real sports is that once you have a uh, you know there are rules and, and they're fairly well established over whatever hundreds of years um, they don't really change right they're minor tweaks but it doesn't but of course that's not the same in games right the game developer actually does change the games to some degree right they they try to you know obviously constantly evolve it in. Uh, and that I've read articles that is part of the challenge, right? You might be really good at this game, you know, and then all of a sudden they change the rules on it, and you know, all of a sudden you maybe not as such a great player anymore. How do you how do you see this? I mean, how does that affecting in a good and a bad way the uh, the ability for teams to really compete? Yeah, I mean, there's there's always going to be that innovation, right? And it's part of what keeps the game interesting like are you more talking about you know how to how do people deal with the fact that these games are changing like fundamentally all the time yeah exactly right and, and i mean yeah. if you know how to play football that you know how to play football you don't really have to keep learning the new rules every every season mm. right and but in you know in esports obviously you do have um the developers changing the rules or, or changing parts of the game right which means you are constantly you know learning 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 right yeah, exactly. And that I mean that's part of I think that's part of what makes it exciting. You know, part of the hard thing is when games will disappear entirely. So, you know, Call of Duty was was, you know, quite a well-performing esport here in Australia, right. but when Activision decided not to support the local market with local tournaments, the scene okay. essentially died okay. entirely here locally. It, it basically doesn't exist mm-hmm. anymore at all. Besides, you know, sparse local small tournaments at max of five ten thousand dollars prize pool. Right. Um, but I think the advantage that does come with with some of these games, and I really like the updating schedule of Dota 2. So Dota 2 is is similar to League of Legends, you know, yep. a top-down multi-online multiplayer online battle arena MOBA game developed by Valve um, and it kind of League of Legends but harder, much harder to get into. Um, not necessarily a higher skill ceiling but a higher entry level for, for people to get into. So thus it's a smaller game. But what they do is they go through what so many, you know, even general app companies do these days, which is every two weeks they'll release a small update and then every, you know, four to six months, sometimes eight, sometimes 12, they release a major update. Right. And that changes what they call the meta in the game. Yeah, so meta, you know, kind of basically, you know, within esports and gaming means, okay, here's the strategy that most people go for. Right. So the meta in a game like CSGO, if you're defending, might be to put two players A, one player mid, and two players B. But maybe a fundamental change to the game of CSGO, which enables you to buy higher priced weapons earlier due to the change in the in the mechanics right. or or change in the map might mean that actually you need to stack three people mid, one A, one B now. And it can make it exciting and reinvent the game for people. It can make these small tweaks. And obviously by doing those small changes into big changes, there's not as many things that are broken either. Mm-hmm. Um, which is what used to happen in the past. Because you think about if you release release a Nintendo sixty four game, that's it. There's no yeah. patches. There's no updates. Right. It's a lot of um, a lot of sleepless nights, I would say, for people trying to release a game like that. Whereas these days, it's not uncommon to have a 40 gigabyte patch on day one <laughs> or right. day 1.5 after the first you know the first time that game is released to be able to change and to balance some things. And that's also what makes them so fantastic. That 
there isn't as much pushback against the rules. I always, you know, I'm not a big follower of Australian rules football, but you can tell whenever there's a rule that's being proposed to be changed because there's all like everyone's on fire <laughs> on social media, all the, all the journalists, you know, everyone's going nuts. Some teams love it. Some teams hate it, but you know, you, Sometimes it's good. It's almost good that you don't get a say um, in some of these gaming titles, and, and it does change that meta. And and yeah. sometimes it makes you want to play more. Sometimes it makes you want to play less. You know, sometimes I loved the meta in Dota 2 for a while, where there was a roaming player, mm-hmm. where they've got three lanes, and usually we'd play one middle, one two top lane, two bottom. But then there was a, a meta for a while where you only have one person top lane and one person roaming all the time. And I love that meta. It made the game fast paced. But sometimes you know they'll say, okay, the game's too fast. We need to give everyone more armor. We need to make everyone do less damage we need to make items more expensive you know and these small tweaks really keeps people on their toes all the time you know when csgo was my last competitive game but when the beta came out myself and my team we spent tens dozens dozens of hours just walking around the map just finding places. Can you boost here? Which means like, can you boost someone up, stand on their head and then get to a place that you probably shouldn't be able to get to? Right. You know, is there a skybox here? Which means that sometimes you can throw a grenade over a wall. Sometimes you can't because there's an artificial box that's placed in the sky there that's right. invisible that you can't see. You know, what are the best strategies to do? You know, where are the best angles to look from? Where are the best places to hold? And I think that's part of what makes it so exciting yeah. that that makes these special things you can do because it's almost like um, – it's, it's almost like, you know, being a cricket fan for a long time, there's no way that you can necessarily fully reinvent the game. You're always going to have people on the field. They're always going to be standing in certain positions. You're always going to have certain types of bats and create certain types of shots, bowl the same ball, you know, and yes, you can be a leg spinner, an off spinner, a fast bowler or a medium fast bowler, but they're still the same. But if you look at another sport that I, that I love, which is mixed martial arts with UFC, there is also still that's being reinvented all the time. You know, the calf kick essentially didn't exist until the past couple of years and now everyone's doing it with great success. You know, for a while it was all about jujitsu. That was the one thing, but everyone leveled out that playing field. So now they're looking at like, okay, what's the next thing? What's the next advantage I can pull? Um, and then going from there. Yep. Yeah, I can hear the gamer really coming through here. I love this. <laughs> that's awesome. Man, yeah. So let, let's talk about my, the, Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say that's, that's how my team became good. You know, we were, no, we were essentially nobodies in Counter-Strike Source, you know, yeah. a top 30 team. And then we, we instantly catapulted to being like a top six because we were nerds. You know, yeah. we spent hours and hours and hours and hours Absolutely. studying the game. Yeah. You know, we, we watched so much more footage than everyone else. We did so many more practice sessions than everyone else. We had a fundamental understanding of the game mechanics and the changes much better than everyone else. But we didn't have the personal skill and experience to back that up. Yeah. So, you know, it's the same way you find other, it's the same way you find fighters. You know, some fighters are just really tough. And they're able to get to the top 15 in the UFC just by taking a lot of hits, giving more and never giving up. Other fighters like Israel Adesanya are able to get there because he's just an absolute clinical technician on his feet. And he's just trained his kicks so well and his distance management so well that he's able to get there. So that's, that's part of the exciting thing for me too. Yeah, I mean I saw that when we launched uh, Glory Kickboxing. It's the same thing when you sit – close up and, and you watch the yeah. different fighters it's it's incredible but but let's get into the the athlete and the the influence part because there is obviously a bit of a, a sort of you know not, not nearly a fine line it, it sort of you know blends into each other right programmers yep. are obviously streamers um uh, and that's different again than I would say in in uh, in, in the real you know sports athletes. Sports athletes really, when you see them, is you know that on the weekend when they have the big match. That's sort of when you when you when you interact with them, right? Yes, they might have a Twitter account or, or Facebook or Instagram, and you know you can follow a little bit their let's call it lifestyle. And, and some obviously do a better job than others. You know, Cristiano Ronaldo has 400 million followers globally, but many of them are literally disappear and then you you know they show up again. 
Whereas, again, in the e-gaming or in the gaming world, it's a bit different, right? Yes, you have, you know, you have these competitions where you see them, you know, playing on the on the global stage, but they're out there every day streaming. Like you said earlier, you know, the example of, you know, you spend three, four hours, you know, you know, doing things. So uh, let's talk a bit about that, the big difference, and also some of the money involved in this uh, for gamers and for the streamers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So you know, one of the like you know one of the things we talked about a little bit before which was you know brands would often come and say you know hey we want to get into esports and usually the answer is no you don't you want to get into gaming and you want to get into gen z millennials and gaming is the interface and the way to talk to them but there are still so many blurs between those two and usually i like to explain the difference between esports and gaming as like sports and a leisure activity so if you're just like kicking a football with mates um, down at the beach, that's not sport. That's just a leisure activity. The same way that if your nephew is playing Fortnite on the iPad by themselves, your auntie is playing Candy Crush on the mobile, that's not esports. That's yeah. just gaming, which Correct. is a leisure activity. It becomes esports when it becomes structured competitive in nature. So I played a lot of mixed um, – I played a lot of mixed volleyball um, when I was a bit younger, you know, 19, 20, 21-year-old playing with 40, 50-year-olds in a C-grade league. You know, you pay $5 per game to play. The winners might get some sort of little medal at the end. <laughs> but it's still sport because you've got jerseys, you've got a team name, you're trying to win, and you're structured. There's a ladder, even though it's super casual. So similar with eSports all the way up to professional competition, that's, that's you know, right. all the way up to glory kickboxing or the NFL Super Bowl. That's, that's when it becomes sports. Um, so looking at that too, though, there's so many blurs between those two you know esports athletes are often more so influencers and sports athletes you know like you said how often do you see cristiano ronaldo pick up a phone and do a vlog and have a youtube channel he releases a vlog every week you know talking about his training and his skills and you know his hips feeling a bit tight you know he's working that out um you know here's my son and cool clothes that i bought for them thanks to the sponsor you know for for h&m for sending those through you don't you don't see that so much much. correct and, and it's the opposite now with influencers. If you compare that to movie stars, you know, the example I use is, okay, you know, what made a movie star so cool? You know, Hugh Jackman, you see him once a year on the silver screen, maybe twice if you're lucky, then he goes off into his Hollywood Hills mansion or wherever the hell he lives and that's it. You know, yep. he's an enigma. You don't yep. see him ever again besides that. And he might make one Instagram post every two months and that's about all you hear from them. Whereas now with these players and influencers, it's the opposite. You're, you're in their life 24-7. Right. They're creating TikToks, they're streaming, they're creating YouTube videos, but most importantly, they're replying to fans and they're engaging with people. Yep. And this is where a lot of the monetization aspect comes in with someone donating to uh, Twitch or subscribing through payment to someone's Twitch channel while they're live streaming. Yep. It'll pop up they'll get the ability to send a message to that streamer. The streamer may choose to reply to that and acknowledge that person exactly and say, hey, Marcus, thanks so much for joining. I'm so glad that you're here today. And yeah. you might ask a question, I'll answer that. You know, how often yeah, do we, you get to ask Cristiano Ronaldo a question yeah, and he'll never. answer? <laughs> never, exactly. exactly. So he's not as approachable. There's not Instagram stories where quite often Instagrammers will say, hey, ask me a question on board. You know, yeah. Fusion Droid does it all the time. Yeah. You go to his Instagram and all his fans will ask him questions. He'll sit there and answer 20 of them, yeah. you know, and that'll just be what's your favorite pizza, you know, for him, Domino's vegan, do you know, um, <laughs> vegan supreme pizza. He always eats that and, and <laughs> vegan garlic bread. Um, you asked that question you know, before. Yeah, like what kind of car do you have? Like a Subaru BRZ, you know, what, you know, what's your favorite character in Fortnite? you know, all that kind of stuff. People will just ask those basic questions, but you get access I think to it's, it. it's that uh, closeness which is now created and, and like I said, you have a real deep look into it. And, and my son just shared with me the other day that, um, you know, he, he's, he's a gamer too uh, and uh, 
So in, on Twitch, he follows a couple of those guys, and they're not even—he's not even watching them play anymore. Now they're just watching a movie together. Right? With Twitch, obviously being part of Amazon, so if you mm. have an Amazon account, um, they're streaming uh, videos there or, or watching whatever or a movie together. And so there were ten thousand people watching the same movie together, but you had mm. to have an Amazon account. So Amazon did a very clever job connecting, of course, you know, their ownership in Twitch with promoting their, you know, the Amazon Prime stuff. So again, I see there's all this amazing interaction and differences in how you know you know this 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 these influencers being used and of course and monetizing their their side of it right yeah yeah exactly yeah and it's it's all it's all about that engagement it's all about being accessible so you know professional esports players still they won't create a lot of content some of them will, but if you look at people who blur the lines really well, like FaZe Clan, you know, as I said, you know, their, their slogan is the world's largest, you know, esports team. And respectfully, they're, they're almost not even an esports team. Yep. Yeah, they've got a CSGO roster and they've done fairly well with that. But if you look at their attention, you look at how many social media posts they make, mm. it's it's all about their content creators. It's all right. about their influencers who, yes, they might play in Fortnite tournaments, but that's not necessarily their goal. Their goal is is entertainment essentially. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's where a lot of the teams who are making money are making that. And I think part of that is because you can only have so many people within the market that can win everything. You need more than that. You know, mm-hmm. you need like Usain Bolt, yes, popular because fastest man and, and all that stuff. But there's only one fastest man. So who knows? Like, does anyone know who the second fastest is? Because I sure don't. Yeah. But if that person <laughs> that person then has to diversify and create a lot of interesting content, maybe they have to be a lot funnier than he is. Maybe right. they have to be a lot more approachable. Maybe they have to create a lot more content. And he might be able to generate more followers than the person who's actually winning just by building those fans through being relatable and yeah. people building fans. You know, it's not always the best UFC fighters that, that get the biggest following. You know, Conor McGregor, the largest by far, by, you know, 3X of any other fighter at minimum, is is not the best greatest fighter of all time. Yeah, he's held some belts, but he's also got some losses. And yeah. and he lost to another fighter, Khabib. But you know, I would say he's probably he, double as popular as Khabib. He's the most interesting so. guy, that's for sure. Now, now yeah. I wanted to quickly talk a bit about the differences in these revenue streams, right? So you have subscription, you know, on Twitch. Yep. I think it's four ninety nine. Um, if you want to follow a uh, an influencer there. Um, you have yep. gifting, you have obviously the advertising dollars, which are shared. You have donation, which there's a little difference between donation and gifting. Um, yep. You know, give us some numbers because I, I know you have a couple of those uh, stats here um, of, of what people are making in this space. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, like an example I gave before, which is Fusion Droid, he talked about his numbers live on my podcast, you know, saying he, he creates six to eight videos a week. Um, works to three to four hours a day, seven days a week. So figures out to be just under a full-time job. Um, he'll earn one to 5,000 AUD in ad revenue per video. So that's anywhere from about 750 US to probably four US, 4K USD per video. So if you crunch the numbers on that, he's extremely consistent. You know, he pretty much will never release less than four videos, five videos a week. Mm-hmm. That's probably a million a year in, in ad revenue for him. And his videos off. are what? Him playing, him talking, him doing what? So he he creates often story so story based Minecraft content. So he right. plays in the game Minecraft, and he'll have a series of content. So they'll they'll create their own little stories that'll follow on from each other. Right. And he has two channels as well. The second channel is about mods. So there's modifications you can do, but it's a bit too different from his main channel. So it's kind of the same way that a company might make a news channel and then a sports channel. You know, mm-hmm. he keeps those two bits of content separately. So okay. if you look at that, you know, on the podcast, he said about ninety five percent of his earnings as a whole come from that ad revenue only five percent come from sponsorship but he doesn't have a robust 
sponsorship sales nature. You know, he doesn't have an agency that's actively going out there every day selling for him to put ad rolls on his videos. And he doesn't push that stuff very much as well as he doesn't live stream. So he doesn't have those live donations. He doesn't have the gifting and donation part of it, right? Okay. So because that's really linked to live streaming, obviously, where that's, uh, you know, where where the gifting and that really comes in. And and again, you know, we we talked about it earlier. It is a huge thing in China. Um, Anyone in China uh, in esports or in gaming knows that um, there's literally millions of dollars being generated um, through this this gifting and, and or or uh, donation side of it, um, but it is it's only slowly picking up, right? So Twitch has it. Um, I think uh, there's one or two other uh, platforms I saw they they starting it as well. But it's it, in let's call it the Western world. It is still fairly new, right? Uh, would that be correct? Yeah, and I guess it, it you know it really depends because. You know, there are obviously lots of um, – there's lots of ways on Twitch for people to make money, like you were saying, through donations and such. You know, there's other things like OnlyFans and Patreon where people are making a lot of money through now as well. You know, there are initiatives on um, – there, there are initiatives on YouTube now where people can actually have a paid subscription or they call it Join, which gives you some of those extra benefits as well. But it's definitely not um, – as robust as what you see with these kind of, you know, it feels like unlimited streaming Asian apps or, or primarily Chinese apps, right? Where, you know, they'll be live streaming to an audience. There won't be a theme. It won't be necessarily about gaming or whatever. It'll just be like, no, hey, talk yeah, to me. Exactly. Then people anything. will be paying for those stickers for Absolutely. those gifts to, to give through to them. There's not that that robust nature. But if you're thinking about like a live streamer, for example, like we've got an example of a streamer that we work with here a lot um, from from his earnings a few years ago and an Aussie, um, you know, getting, getting um, about five. 500 concurrent viewers on average and this is someone who's very he's very very high earning for his bracket so you would expect probably someone with a thousand concurrent viewers to generally earn about as much as he does Mm. but out of his earnings you know um this is not including ad revenue for him because it's not as big on something like twitch but he gains about 43 percent of his income from from twitch subscriptions and and donations of bits through there this isn't including donations so if you if you were to look at subscriptions and bits together just that version of of fans giving him money is the same as regular sponsorship and once-off sponsorship combined mm-hmm. that's not including any of his donations or his ad revenue that he's yeah. getting through there as well so it gives you um you know it gives you an idea as to the earning power of, of that so with much less viewers as a whole on twitch they're so much more highly engaged you can earn much more dollars as a whole through that because these people are donating and and providing those experiences to you know the the top Example, and I think he's the most subscribed to Twitch streamer right now, which is Nick Merckx. I think he announced he earns about he's, – he's got about 60,000 subscribers at his peak. Right. So if you do the math, what you are saying before, that's 60,000 subscribers times 499 USD per subscriber. That's uh, 299,400 USD. Twitch as an average will keep half of that or as a base. Obviously, if you're that big, you've got some negotiating power. But let's say worst case scenario, he's only getting the base level subscribers, which is $5. There are other tiers. You can do more. But let's say the worst case scenario, they're all only the base level and he hasn't negotiated a special deal. He's earning $149,700 a month just from subscriptions alone, USD. Incredible. Yeah, and that, that's sort of what I really wanted to bring up in this podcast is, you know, the numbers are, you know, incredibly large for, you know, young, very, in many cases, very young uh, 
uh, entrepreneurs in their own way or you know, young streamers yeah. and, and gamers there. And, and I think that's interesting. I think that's what, what I want people really to get their head around it. And, and it's not always just about the guys who have you know, tens of thousands of followers or, or, or millions of them, you know, as you said earlier, um, if you niche and if you have a you know, strong little uh, group there, but you're doing something unique for them, which which they appreciate, um, there are ways to, ge you know, get, generate these revenue streams. And just to, you know, clarify the difference between donation and gifting is really donation is just cash up, you know, where someone gives you, gives uh, you know, donates money versus gifting is a, is a gamified version of it, right? You get flowers, you get uh, whatever, uh, a hug. A, a kiss or you can give them a, you know even a yacht or, or a condominium or something like this um, mm. and then that turns into cash right so there is a bit more of a fun element to it um, and again that's where I think in China this is so huge and it's now picking up around the world uh, where this doesn't feel as much as you're giving money per se even though it has a monetary value which then as I said the gamer <laughs> or the, the influencer can then take this these gifts and turn it into cash which is then of mm -hmm. course the, the interesting part for him there so it's a it's an amazing model there and and but i, I want to talk a bit about what you just said about how that revenue is split you know and we discussed that earlier a bit um, you know obviously we have friends from google and apple here um, who have these you know large platforms and they take a big chunk of any in-app purchases right and everyone who knows the space knows that it's 30 percent uh, which is what these guys are taking so you know, and then it means you know at least seventy percent then for the platform and this and this let's call it the influencer the streamer to share, uh, you know. And there's obviously been some controversy with with Fortnite and Apple having a legal battle there. You know, just let's talk about that for a minute. You know, what, what's happening there in this space? Yeah, for sure. So you know, there's there's been a big um, you know a big fight I guess between Epic Games kind of stamping you know stamping their feet down you know with their crazily successful Fortnite game and saying to Apple you know no we don't want to pay the 30% anymore so yep. you know any any transactions at all you know straight off straight off your total off the top need yep. to be progress through Apple of which they take a 30% cut so that's quite a lot of money you know off that's the top right. if you're if you're a game like Fortnite doing you know millions and millions of dollars profit a year imagine how much more you could be doing um, tens of millions of dollars hundreds of millions of dollars profit imagine how much more you could be doing without that 30 30 percent of apple going so they've had a lawsuit fight against them for a while i think apple recently announced that if your app is making under a million dollars um they'll lower it to 15 percent, but mm -hmm. still hasn't fixed that i guess that entire thing and you know it's 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 part of Epic Games' wider stance, I guess, because they created a competitor PC platform to Steam, which is often the place where people will talk but also play games with each other and purchase games, yep. where they created their own Epic Games store and they said as part of that that they're going to take less of a cut. I believe it was 25% from Steam and a much smaller cut from the Epic Games store. Hmm. So, you know, they seem to kind of, as they say, practice what you preach, I guess, there in, in a sort of sense. But it's been an interesting discussion back and forward, you know, as to, you know, whether Apple should be allowed to do that or not and have that whole closed marketplace where if you have an iPhone, you need to use the App Store um, and you're part of that. You know, yeah, that, that and, and, and that people will look to, to look at ways to go around it. it that's it's an obvious, and and so I do I do hope they they will start lowering these numbers because uh, I do think it, it will grow the ecosystem even more. You know that that's my big belief, and and of course we I think we both have heard stories that they are looking at to reduce it, maybe even cutting it by half. And if they will do it, of course Google will have to follow too. And um, so it's been interesting uh, space to watch for sure. Uh, now now. Well, I had last uh, something which just came to my mind here earlier. I wanted to ask. Uh, it's kind of slipped my mind. But um, to slowly wrap it up here, um, and there's so many more other pieces of 
of this industry, uh, which we could talk about, you know, the, the, the Twitches and YouTubes of how they make their money, you know, mix or failed, of course, um, you know, so, mm -hmm. but we'll maybe, you know, have to cover that in another podcast here. You know, you got Discord and you got all these other platforms, which are really so gamer specific that if you're not in this space, you wouldn't have even heard of it. Right. I mean, you know, my, mm. my kids are only on Discord, and, and I literally had to sign up there to to, to find them. <laughs> so, you know, they don't use WhatsApp, they don't use WeChat or, or any of those other platforms. So, um, it is it, it's a very unique environment and world where I think the gaming world lives. Um, and if you, as a brand, want to target them, you have to figure out how to get there. Right. I think that's the you know that's obviously what you do with big big esports. Uh, that's what we're doing with Total Esports here. Um, helping companies to get there and then find those, you know, what you call Gen Zs and the millennials which are out there, right? So that's that's the fun part of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like a whole, yeah, it's a whole world that, that I guess you need your eyes open to, and I guess that's a lot of what I do, and, and and a lot of what you do as well, right? Is helping people to understand where to move in the market, and not everything um, that's in the news or in PR is is often the best thing to do, and you know, quite often it's not the best thing. You know, it's um. Because you know, when when talking to a lot of brands and and investors, the only thing they're ever exposed to is the fact that esports teams exist. They don't, you know, they can't make any other informed decisions because they simply don't know that these other things exist. They don't know really that streamers exist and how to get to them and how they're making money. They don't know any of these answers because the only things they see is the size of Phase Clan that offset the rappers invested in them. They see that NBA players are buying esports teams and managing them, and you know, the, all that kind of stuff. So they're just simply just not exposed. Yeah. No, absolutely, and, and and as I keep learning every day here, you uh, from people like yourself and others, uh, it's an incredible ecosystem, um, and it's very intertwined. And you know, I think I shared with you before one one of the things we're doing now, we're bringing third party IP from whether it's a famous football team or it's a Hollywood superstar, we bring them into you know in this, uh, into games now. Right? So we we work with some mm -hmm. of the game developers to drop these IPs in there. Um, as in-game purchase, which, you know, that's where, you know, especially the mobile games, that's how they make their money, right? It's not a subscription model. Um, and their money, and that money is, can be huge. If you have big IP, I just saw Conor McGregor, uh, was dropping into, into this sort of uh, game out of, uh, it's actually, it's, it's a small developer, um, out of mm. Eastern Europe who, uh, who did a deal with him. Um, of course, you see, you know, PUBG's, you know, then deals was, uh, you know, uh, was a, pack, a black pink, you know, big uh, K-pop brand uh, group out of out of Korea. Uh, so you see all those those groups now doing these, these cross fertilizations, right? Um, what I would call co-branding, basically, right? Where you take something which is already a large established brand and then dropping it into your own platform, right? And, and I love these, these corporations there, uh, um, you know, and, and it's, it, it basically does the same trick, right? It drives the brand. Um, it obviously makes the game more interesting and, and the brand which drops in gets that exposure to that audience too, right? So both sides win, both sides make money with it. And you, you have any other interesting example on that? Uh, anything you may have been involved in or you've seen uh, which is really stands out in that space? Yeah, there's, um, you know, there's so many more examples of that happening now where uh, professional athletes and influencers are looking towards their future and looking to gain equity in things. So one example would be, I guess, FaZe Clan that we talked about before, you know, they, they have an equity based relationship with the meal replacement company. They're providing marketing, you know, in, in regards for equity, essentially, you're seeing that with people like Conor McGregor with his own game, you know, we're working with some athletes, bringing them to become content creators themselves and a natural progression into the space. You're seeing influencers release their own apps, you know, Playside doing um, the Keep It Cleaner app, you know, a fitness 
a fitness-based female-focused app, you know, yeah. Bloom, a meditation-based app um, that are doing very well in their own right. And yeah. you're seeing that with so many more influencers around the world too. You know, you're seeing maps from people like um, Dr. Disrespect created his own map who's a right. famous streamer in a game called Rogue Company from yeah. Hi-Rez Studios yeah. um, and seeing things like that too. So, yeah, people are really just trying to set very, up their future by having creative. ownership in companies. Yeah. Yeah, and I just saw yesterday, the other day, actually, I think it's Mobile Legends, Bang Bang, with a big uh, mobile game here in Asia. Uh, they did a deal with Manny Pacquiao just for the Philippines. Um, so you have Pacquiao now as an avatar in the game, you know. Uh, oh, cool. So, again, all those things are happening. And, you know, Manny Pacquiao, of course, is already a global star, and, and I'm sure they will use him globally as well. But they launched it, of course, in the Philippines, which is the home market. And you can imagine how, how huge that will be there, right? Uh, the influence, the, the, the attention that will get and, and people driving towards it. And, and of course, you don't get them for free, right? If you want to play as Mr. Pacquiao there, you have to pay for it. That's obviously how the games make their money. And that's sort of what we said earlier already. It's clearly the the publishers and developers are making a large chunk of that revenue, um, you know, and, uh, and it's for all the right reasons there. So... Chris, mm. this has been fun. Uh, I think we've covered a huge ground here. Um, hopefully, you know, everyone who is listening learned a few things here and there and uh, either we confused the hell out of them or, or made them a little smarter, that's for sure. And I learned a few things as well. Uh, so thanks for your time there. I'm sure we're going to do a bit more of that um, as we're already discussing a few potential collaboration on some ideas we've had. So uh, I look forward to doing that a bit more often with you. Yeah, no worries at all, man. Happy to be here. Yeah, awesome. So uh, all the best there in uh, in Melbourne and we'll chat we'll talk some more soon. Thanks, man. Cheers. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.